Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. We're finishing up our second period with Lee Smolin's book, The Trouble with Physics. But before we do that, I thought I'd read something that I printed out from CNN.com. And this is from Tuesdays, so this two days old. So it's fresh off the presses, CNN.com. And it's an interesting article uh, by Elizabeth Landau called Why So Many Minds Think Alike. So I thought I'd read you this, because what we're going to be talking about is with science fiction is thinking differently. We're going to try to turn all all of us into different versions of Steve Jobs, someone who thinks differently and wants to change the world. And science fiction then becomes a vehicle for that. Someone in Microsoft uh, <coughs> likes science fiction a lot. Who's that? Alan? Yeah, Steve Allen. That's right. The One of the founders of Microsoft. He has a science fiction museum he even founded. So people who are into technology and doing very creative things otherwise often go into science fiction because it gives them an edge of what's possible. Helps stretch the mind. It's strange that we're trying to think differently when typically in science fiction books there's that whole issue of groupthink and the people that think differently get killed a lot. Yeah, yeah. People who think differently do get... Well, if you look over history, um, uh, look at Jesus, look at Socrates... They paid for good teaching with their lives. And think of what, what, what Jesus did. He basically said, God is a happy God, and uh, love is the driving force of the universe. That cost him his life. If you think of Socrates, what did Socrates do? He, well, what did he do? What, did, what physically did Socrates do during the day that got him into so much trouble that he had to be killed? By giving him the famous tea. What? He taught, but what did he do to teach? Well, um, I'm trying to think this is... Well, um, I think Anichi said this. He brought a science down from the heavens. So um, he taught kind of the physical world, which went against um, kind of the whole idea of, of like, when when Zeus is um, angry, there's lightning as opposed to... But, but, but what physically did he do when he woke up in the morning? Where did he go? What did he do? Don't think so lofty. The gymnasium? What's that? The gymnasium, where like all the youth, like that was one of the charges against him, is that all he did was he hung out with like the youth and taught them things. Um, Well, mostly, that's sort of correct. Mostly he hung out at the market. And what did he do with when he was at the market and he talked to the youth and he talked to the people? Start discussions. He would start discussions. He would ask questions. He would try to get them to think. He would ask them to question the basic assumptions that they would have in their daily life. Asking them questions. Then when you ask questions, you're asking people to question their assumptions. And when you do that, they get really upset. They get very upset. They couldn't take it anymore. 
So when you ask people to question things that they actually assume, there's often a violent reaction to that. So uh, Galileo did the same thing. He almost paid with his life. He didn't. He lucked out. He was simply banished to his house for house arrest for eight years. But he was going to be killed. So uh, a lot of people have to realize that when you raise new ideas, there is a response to the human species, which is, uh, you know, get rid of that person. So let's, let's think about this. Why so many minds think alike? This is from uh, by Elizabeth Landau of CNN. You're in a room with ten other people who seem to agree on something, but you hold the opposite view. Do you say something, or do you just go along with the others? Decades of research show people tend to go along with the majority view, even if that view is objectively incorrect. Now scientists are supporting those theories with brain images. A new study in the Journal of Neuron shows when people hold an opinion differing from others in a group, their brains produce an error signal. A zone of the brain popularly called the oops area becomes extra active, while the reward area slows down, making us think we are too different. We show that a deviation from the group opinion is regarded by the brain as a punishment, said Vasily Klucherev, postdoctoral fellow at the F.C. Donders Center for Cognitive Neuroimaging in the Netherlands and lead author of the study. Participants, all female, had to rate 222 faces based on physical beauty on a scale from 1 to 8. Afterwards, researchers told each participant either that the average score was higher or that it was lower than her rating. Some participants were told the average rating was equal to her rating. The researchers then chatted with the participant before suddenly asking the participant to do the rating again. Most subjects changed their opinion toward the average. The two leading theories of conformity are that people look to the group because they are unsure of what to do and that people go along with the norm because they are afraid of being different, said Gregory Burns, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Emory University of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Burns' research, which he describes in the book Iconoclast, a neuroscientist reveals how to think differently, found that brain mechanisms associated with fear and anxiety do play a part in situations where a person feels his or her opinion goes against the grain. Participants looked at projections of three-dimensional objects and had to identify which shapes were similar. As with the new study in Neuron, participants tended to shift their opinion to the majority view, although in this case, the problems had objectively correct answers. The effect was also more potent in this experiment because actors were in the room to simulate a group with a shared opinion, he said. But brain images revealed participants were not lying just to fit in. Changes in the activation of the visual part of the brain suggest the group opinion actually changed participants' perception of what they saw. One reason behind conformity is that in terms of human evolution, 
going against the group is not beneficial to survival, Burns said. There is a tremendous survival advantage to being in a community, he said. Our brains are are exquisitely tuned to what other people think about us, aligning our judgments to fit in with the group, Burns said. The most famous experiments in the field were conducted by Solomon Ash in the 1950s. He found that many people gave incorrect answers about matching lines printed on cards, echoing the incorrect answers of the actors in the room. But unlike Burns's finding that fear and anxiety relate to this effect, Ash saw conformity studies reflect saw conformity studies reflections of people's reliance on one another for knowledge of the world. The darker side of conformity relates to Stanley Milgram's experiments of the 1960s and 70s, in which most people obeyed orders to deliver electric shocks to an innocent person in the next room. As in these studies, subjects caved into social pressure, presumably going against their own previous moral convictions. The research calls into question decision-making bodies that operate by consensus, Burns said. For example, in the U.S. legal system, many cases are decided by the unanimous judgment of the members of a jury. You can't separate those judgments from the fact that you have 12 people who have to come to a unanimous decision and have to conform their opinion to each other. So, of course, I will distort how they view evidence, he said. Any type group decision-making process that does not require unanimous decisions is like to make a better one, Burns said. That applies to committees in particular. What does it take to break the conformity effect? Ash talked about the power of the minority of one. When a unanimous group pressures the individual, that group is weakened as soon as one person breaks off. Anyone inclined to draw two pessimistic conclusions from this report would do well to remind himself that the capacities for independence are not to be underestimated, Ash wrote in 1955 Scientific American article describing his research. He may also draw consolation from a further observation. Those who participated in his challenging experiment agreed nearly without acceptance, exception that independence was preferable to conformity. So people admire independence, but it's so hard to do. Now let's just read a little bit about that electroshock experiment. This is something you might have heard. This is another CNN article, again by Elizabeth Landau. I'll just read a little bit about it. If someone told you to press a button to deliver a 450-volt electric shock to an innocent person in the next room, would you do it? Most of you would clearly say, of course not. Common sense may say no, but decades of research suggests otherwise. In the early 1960s, a young psychologist at Yale began what became one of the most widely recognized experiments in his field. In the first series, he found that about two-thirds of subjects were willing to inflict what they believed were increasingly painful shocks on an innocent person when the experimenter told them to do so, even when the victim screamed and pleaded. Two-thirds of the people. The legacy of 
Stanley Milgram, who died 24 years ago on December 20, reached reaches far beyond that initial round of experiments. Researchers have been working on the questions he posed for decades and have not settled on a brighter vision of human obedience. A new study to be published in the January issue of the American Psychologist confirmed these results in an experiment that mimics many of Milligram's original conditions. This and other studies have corroborated the startling conclusion that the majority of people, when faced in certain kinds of situations, will follow orders, even if those orders entail harming another person. It's situations that make ordinary people into evil monsters, and it's situations that make ordinary people into heroes, said Philip Zimbardo, professor emeritus of psychology at Stanford University and the author of The Lucifer Effect, Understanding How Good People turn evil. Now let me just read a little bit about how the experiment works so you can get an idea and then we'll stop and go back to Smolin's book. Milligram, who also came up with the theory behind six degrees of separation, the idea that everyone is connected to everyone else through a small number of acquaintances, set out to figure out why people would turn against their own neighbors in circumstances such as the Nazi-occupied Europe. Referring to Nazi leader Adolf Eichmann, Milgram Milgram wrote in 1974, could it be that Eichmann and his million accomplices in the Holocaust were just following orders? Could we call them all accomplices? Well, his experiment in its standard form included a fake shock machine, a teacher, a learner, and an experimenter in a laboratory setting. The participant was told that he or she had to teach the student to memorize a pair of words, and the punishment for a wrong answer was a shock from the machine. The teacher sat in front of the shock machine, which had not, which had 30 levers. Mind you, this was a fake shock machine. It had 30 levers, each corresponding to an additional 15 volts. With each mistake the student made, the teacher had to pull the next lever to deliver a more painful punishment. While the machine didn't generate shocks and a recorded voice track simulated painful reactions, the teacher was led to believe that he or she was shocking a student who screamed and asked to, be, and asked to leave at higher voltages and eventually fell silent. If the teacher questioned Continuing, as instructed, the experimenter simply said, The experiment requires that you go on, said Thomas Blass, author of the biography, The Man Who Shocked the World, The Life and Legacy of Stanley Milgram. About 65% of the participants pulled levers corresponding to the maximum voltage of 450 volts, in spite of the screams of agony from the learner. What the experiment shows is that the person whose authority I consider to be legitimate, that he has a right to tell me what to do, and therefore I have an obligation to follow his orders. That person could make me, make most people, act contrary to their conscience. Okay, then he also goes on to talk about, you know, the. Um, she also goes on to talk about the Stanford Prison Experiment and things like that. What does this relate to that you can think of that is in the news today and yesterday relating to Barack Obama, our new president. Speak louder because it won't be picked up by the mic. 
Guantanamo Bay. Yes, one second. Matthew, I'm in class, so I'll have to call you back, okay? Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Sorry about that. Guantanamo Bay. What else? That's exactly right. Guantanamo Bay. Uh, Guantanamo Bay and what else? And then I'll ask you, what about Guantanamo Bay? There's a couple things that are in the news. Dealing with the CIA. What about the secret prisons and torture? Remember the secret prisons that the CIA has been operating on? Well, uh, one of his like campaign pledges was to uh, try to do away with that whole like uh, process in like the first hundred days. So his first day in office, uh, he suspended the Guantanamo prosecutions first, and then he started with the CIA to get um, like his total control over that aspect of their operations abroad. Good. He's signing executive orders, exactly right, to stop a torture and to shut down the secret CIA prisons, which are scattered all over the world. There were a network of prisons where torture was done. Now, these are upstanding Americans. These are people like all of us. If you had met them in a coffee shop or here at the university, you would not have thought them to be any different than anyone else. But they've been torturing people. In Guantanamo Bay. Now this gets to Guantanamo Bay. The torture that was that was done, the torture that was used to try to get information from people in Guantanamo Bay, holding people without without trial, on and on and on. Well, all of that you can say. Well, you know, what do you mean there were people? How could you get Americans to torture somebody? It's like an oxymoron. Americans aren't supposed. We're supposed to be the good guys. We're the, supposed to be the ones who are opposed to the uh, abuse of human rights. How could we do that? Well, what do we learn from these from these experiments? That if someone at a higher level of authority, or if a group, those two things, a higher level of authority tells you to do something a good hefty majority of the people will simply do it. And if you have a group around you that says, hey, look, if the boss says we do this, we do this, there's extra pressure, conformity, to do things that those people otherwise would never probably think of doing. Go ahead. Well, can't there um, also be kind of the um, us and them mentality? Like, um, it's technically in the time of war, so although um, in this case... Um, um, Al-Qaeda might not be like a formal government agency, we're still at war with them. And in times of war, we tend to think of not so much um, our enemy as being human, but our enemy as just being the enemy that wants to kill us. So it might not be also as much of their following orders, it's just as their morality is changing because of the time of war. Their morality is changing. Or not morality, but like like moral like moral sense. Like it seems okay to kill like someone on a battlefield, but but not okay to kill them in like the streets of Chicago. 
Yeah, but of course, a lot of these people are people who are just gathered up and taken to prisons. <coughs> I mean, you're not on a battlefield anymore. You're just there with the person, and there's a lot of time to coolly think about what you're well, going to do. But they're still connected to that conflict. I mean, um, if it's actually taking place or not. I mean, like they're being told that you are here for. I mean, obviously they're not being told because there's no habeas corpus, but but like they're there because of crimes against Americans, quote unquote. So. I still see it as, I'm not condoning it by any means, but there's still a difference between them in the cells or them like, just like in everyday society. That's an interesting thing. It's a, it's a way of thinking about it, and I'm not going to argue with you on that, because that's, you might, someone might say that's a rationalization for it, but the reality is they were doing things that they would not otherwise normally do. Right. Now, I'm not condemning. I'm just pointing out people do things that they would not ordinarily do. Nazi war criminals are an interesting case in point because they, of course, did many heinous acts. I mean, horrific heinous acts. What happened after the war? Many of them escaped and went to places like Argentina where they became pillars of the community, stalwart bearers of what should be done? No one ever thought they could have possibly been Nazi war criminals. They became things like bakers. A lot of their children. The Pope. Pardon me? The Pope was in Hitler Youth. The Pope was in Hitler Youth? In the, which, which one are you talking about? The current. Oh, the current one, St. Benedict, yeah. Actually, um, um, he didn't directly. But still. Yeah. Well, back in those days, just about everybody of the youth were involved in something. The whole country was taken over. It was a. Someone who was going to become the pope would have. Right. Well, you would, but you can't you expect that they would be redeemed in some aspect if they were deemed holy enough to become the pope. Well, and like he's, I mean he's. So that he like regrets his time in the Nazi youth, but as is what's been previously stated, it's like if you weren't in the Nazi youth, it's like like what was wrong with you? So you're basically basing the condemnation yourself if you weren't in it. So, well, you know, perhaps the broader question is, what could have seized a country's mind that there would have been an entire nation going all the way down to the youth that would not be questioning what they were doing? Well, it's uh, that's like a classic wartime or um, rebuilding time psychology is uh, like what you said with the us and them. You can take it to uh, like a nationalist type of thing, and then when you start committing acts that are against your conscience, it's easy to rationalize that uh, you're doing it for the good of you know the country. Or in the United States right now, you're doing it for national security, so it's okay to cut some corners and mm-hmm. uh, you know go around some laws. So. Um, it's easy for the human mind to rationalize actions and can't reconcile with the conscience. These are all interesting points. That's good. That's good. Now, the question remains, if this can happen on the nations on a national level, and it can happen to Germans as well as, you know, some Americans doing things that they otherwise would not have done, um, does it just stop with violent acts? Does it just stop? Does it, is that the end of it? We already heard about in the articles. What about juries? Do juries condemn people because of this groupthink? 
Groupthink is now something that's very widely recognized, and it's a huge worry in corporations. Because what happens is corporations get into a groupthink mode where they think everything is okay because people are reinforcing everything is okay. They're looking at each other and saying it when in fact all of Detroit is going bankrupt. Do you get the idea? Corporations just go right off the hill. The entire economic collapse that we're facing right now was partly a groupthink experience where everyone was looking at each other and saying everything's okay when in fact the entire economy was marching right off the cliff. So corporations know that this groupthink can kill them as a company, that they can really get all messed up. And that was one of the reasons Apple eventually came to appreciate Steve Jobs. He had a talent for breaking up groupthink, where people would think everything is okay, and he would just change everything. The thing about Apple is they revolutionize things too often for most corporations. Most corporations set up things nicely and then let a group, let a group think sort of settle in. And then they're like, they're like a huge train that keeps on rolling down the track until it crashes. And Steve Jobs realized that that never is a good model. You might as well have a revolution on a regular basis. Change the way people think on a regular basis. And so one of the things about Steve Jobs is he was so unpredictable. In fact, there are famous stories about Steve Jobs relating to employees. Employees sometimes would fear going into an elevator with him, fearing that by the time they got out of the elevator, they wouldn't have a job anymore, meaning he would be so abrupt with people. He was a very difficult person to work with, being so abrupt, changing things. Some people wondered whether he fired some people just to make a point to scare everybody else so that they wouldn't have this settled-in complacency in their thinking. Meaning, it's natural, it's part of human nature to have that sort of settle in. And if you recognize that, and you're in a position of power like Steve Jobs, and you want the company to do dump something differently, you have to break it, this groupthink, all the time. Well, we talked about it in extreme examples with regard to violence, then we talk about it with corporations, and we talk about it with juries. Does there is there some realm in the human experience where it would not affect us? There's no... Pardon me? Sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. There's no, there's no area where we can say, here's the line. Beyond this line, the groupthink experience won't, won't happen. We're safe. So when it comes to science, we're faced with the exact same problem. We have something called peer review where scientists' research gets sent out and has to be approved by one's peers in order to get published. And then we have National Science Foundation and other granting organizations that have to approve of research before you get money. Now, according to this groupthink idea, if you are going to be applying to the National Science Foundation or some other granting organization, they're going to take that grant out and send it to people, peers, and those people are going to have to approve it. What kind of research is likely going to be approved? The kind that's popular at the time. Popular at the time. Let's be more specific than that. The kind that like reflects the um, views of the people who are reviewing it. Yeah, people are going to be reviewing it, and they're going to want to see grants 
that support their own ideas. Very, very, very rarely do you find a reviewer who reviews work that is totally opposite his or her own work and or com- or his or her own views of the world, of the existence, and says, wow, that's a great idea. Let's just go ahead and do it. What you have is turf, and people fight to maintain their turf. And part of the fight is to conquer one's enemies. And that means squelch the research. Thus, you have a situation where new scientists coming up with new ideas, radically new ideas, often get squelched. Very often. In fact, it's the norm. And in physics, we're going to talk about it with regard to Smolin's book. That is the way to do it. I have a one article. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to mention it. Here's another article from CNN. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. This is from Fox News from Thursday, last Thursday, January 15th. And it's, uh, but it was also reported on CNN that clouds of methane that have been discovered that are seasonal may mean life on Mars. Now, no scientist that I've heard of has can think of any other reason there would be seasonal clouds of methane, huge clouds of methane in the atmosphere of Mars. Mars uh, methane is produced is a gas produced by life forms, and seasonal methane is clearly it comes about more in the summertime than the wintertime when life would grow. It can be produced by volcanic processes, but there are no known volcanic processes operating on Mars. So if you think about it, what would have happened? Well, if you go back 12 years ago, say, most scientists were saying that there is no evidence of any other planets around any other stars, despite a huge number of stars. Most scientists were actually saying we're yet to discover a planet. Where they thought this was our solar system was an anomaly. Well, just think about that. Our solar system is an anomaly. We have a sample of one, one solar system. It had nine major planets, an asteroid belt, tons of comets, meteors, all types of junk. I mean, it's not like there was only one planet around our solar system, in our solar system. And then they're looking at all the zillions of stars and saying there's no other planets elsewhere. It's just recently that astronomers have begun to accept the idea that planets may be ubiquitous and that planets in the warm area around a sun may be very common. With regard to life elsewhere, they're still not widely accepting it, the idea that there could be life. Just recently they've come to the idea that Mars was once warm and wet and a very nice environment that could have fostered life. Yet they still said no, no, no. Now they have clouds of methane that are still there, meaning something's still struggling along. Seasonal appears from the clouds. Yet at the same time you have scientists resisting it to the end. Now the the head of NASA just resigned and his parting words were in my lifetime, I'm absolutely certain that there's going to be an announcement that not only was there life on Mars, but there's something still up there, something still struggling around, and uh, that life is basically all over the place. So, as a paraphrase of what he said, but that's basically the idea. Why is it then, if it's if this stuff is coming out, why is it that scientists are so reluctant to talk about it or to accept the obvious that what we see around us may not be so so unique. So the real question is, is this groupthink 
a cause of what's going on. It is to groupthink a cause of what's going on. And so what we have is radical ideas that would have been spurned violently years back, slowly seeping in, that they're slowly being accepted, but slowly. Now, who is Barbara McClintock? She's a geneticist. And what did she, what did she study? Uh, Transposons and corn. Corn. She studied corn. What's the story about Barbara McClintock? She was one of the, she was one of the world's greatest geneticists. What's the story about her? Do you know? Anyone know? Well, for the longest while, she published her work. But when she died, they went into her file cabinets. And they found tons of unpublished manuscripts that were gems, beautifully done research about the genetics of corn. What it turned out to be, she simply stopped trying to fight it. She just stopped trying to fight her peers. She just said it wasn't worth it. She just wanted to do her research. And so after she would do a project, she'd put it in her file cabinet. And they eventually got published afterwards. People people got hold of those things afterwards. But it was the the big thing was she said, it's just not worth it to fight it anymore. Every time you say anything that's different, and this isn't whether there's life on other planets, this isn't whether violence should be used to stop terrorists, uh, torture should be used, this isn't stuff like this. This is just corn. This is just corn, the stuff you pick up at the market, the genetics of corn. The struggle to get the ideas out about corn. I mean, it's a little bigger than that. Well, how is it bigger than that? Well, I mean, she was talking about transposons, which are jumping genes. And whenever you're talking about genetics of anything, it can some it, it can perhaps you know apply to the genetics of humans. And people don't like the idea of oh, well, you know, we're like corn, or we're like mice, or we're like they don't like the idea that we're similar to what we think are lesser life forms. So. But, you know, you, you just, in my view, you reaffirmed what we were, I was, the, 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 the point of view I was pushing, which was, they were studies about corn, and that people had reactions against it for various reasons, comparing us to other things. Okay. I mean, yeah, but it's not like, I mean, it's not... It's not as small as saying, okay, it's just about corn. Because it's not just about corn. I mean, it's, it's bigger than that. So. What you're saying is true, that the implications of research went way beyond corn. But it was about corn. Yep. But the implications were about corn. I mean, the implications went, went beyond corn. Um, I don't know. I, I, I sort of see what you're saying as being supportive of the idea that people react strongly. Well, let's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, in a way that you end up needing some mechanism to get the information out. Well, Barbara McClintock's solution was simply to do her research and put it in a file cabinet. Other scientists don't do that. So let's find out what other scientists have to do. Let's go back to Lee Smolin's book. And then when we go into the science fiction articles, uh, science fiction novels, which we start on Tuesday the very first science fiction novel that you're going to be reading over the weekend. Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. 
um, covering much of the very same ideas that we're talking about now, but from the context. So make sure you read that by over the weekend. Let's look at some of the things that Lee Smolin is talking about with regard to physics. Let's look on page 262. In the middle. Still, if we judge by the standards of the 200 years before 1980, it does appear that the pace of irreversible progress in elementary particle theory has slowed. We've already discussed the easy explanations for the failure of the last 25 years. It's not for lack of data. There are plenty of unexplained results to excite the imaginations of theorists. It's not that theories take a long time to be tested. There's rarely been more than a decade between a new theory's prediction of a new phenomenon phenomenon and its confirmation. It's not for lack of effort. Far more people now work on problems in fundamental physics than in the whole combined history of the subject. And it certainly cannot be blamed on a lack of talent. In earlier chapters, I hypothesized that what has failed is not so much a particular theory as a particular style of research. If one spends time in both the community of string theorists and the community of people, working on background-independent approaches to quantum gravity, one cannot help but be struck by a difference in style and in the values expressed by the two communities. These differences reflect a split in theoretical physics that goes back more than half a century. What is Lee Smolin talking about? He's talking about, again, as you mentioned, two different styles for research. One is mm-hmm. more insightful, philosophical, where you, you think very deeply and basically on the fundamentals of physics and where you can progress in things that have been left untouched. The other is more of a scientific, hands-on, mathematical computational study of research where even though you can't see farther and it's not as insightful, it's literally step by step by step. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And hopefully you'll find something insightful in the process. Interesting. Yeah. That's a good way of phrasing it. Uh, Smolin talks about it as one in which the style of sort of the what used to be called the relativity community or the quantum gravity world is uh, core values of this community were the respect for individual ideas and research programs, suspicion of fashion, reliance on mathematically clean arguments, and a conviction that the key problems (coughs) were closely related to foundational issues about the nature of space, time, and quantum. And on the other hand, what you're saying, the other style is more computational. The string theorists compute, 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 calculate. Uh, it's been more brash, aggressive, a competitive atmosphere. Theorists vie to respond quickly to new developments. Okay? And uh, they're distrustful of philosophical issues, exactly what you're saying. That means there's a groupthink culture, a style, a culture of the people that develops. And the people tend to reinforce that style among themselves. Now, if you're in one style and somebody comes at you from another, you're outside of that group. There is a, a huge amount of work in sociology where they talk about norms and the impact of norms to con- force conformity on the individual. 
gangs have been studied at large, you know, to, to great extent on this, how gangs get people to conform, uh, to act in a certain way so that they can enforce gang behavior. And the amount of pressure that you get on the individual for that conformity is, uh, is extremely well documented. Let's go over to page 267. 267. Who wants to read this one? You're, you're all going to be reading things as, as we go on. It won't just be me. Who wants to be me? Now, the thing about it when you read a paragraph is you have to read clearly. That means, unlike what people do when they're in high school and beginning colleges, you have to use your lips, meaning no mumbling. You want to give it a shot? Great. Read the paragraph uh, starting, It is worth noting. It is worth noting that the word sociology comes up more nowadays among string theorists than among any other group of scientists I know. It seems to be shorthand for the view of the community. In discussing the current state of affairs with young string theorists, you often hear them say things like, I believe in the theory, but I hate the sociology. If you comment on the narrowness of viewpoints represented at string theory conferences or on the rapid succession of fashionable research topics from one year to the next, a string theorist will agree and add, I don't like it, but it's just the sociology. More than one friend has advised me that the community has decided string theory is right and there is nothing you can do about it. You can't fight sociology. Hmm. There's sort of a fatalism with this, isn't that? You can't fight it. Even people that are in it, having some disagreements with it. Go along with it. How about reading just one more paragraph? The real so, a real sociologist. A real sociologist will tell you that to understand the workings of community, you have to investigate power. Who has power over whom, and how is that power exercised? The sociology of science is not a mysterious force. It refers to the influence that older, established scientists have over the careers of younger scientists. We scientists feel uncomfortable talking about it because it forces us to confront the possibility that the organization of science may not be entirely objective and rational. What do you think about that? What are your thoughts? What are your feelings about what Smolin is talking about? Go ahead. Some people haven't spoken yet. A lot of times the, the younger scientists, uh, some of the string theorists, individually have really serious misgivings about the way that they operate, but they always point to the leaders. They don't feel personally accountable. They point to the leaders in the field. And the leaders in the field get elevated by the community to the point where they're not accountable to anyone else. They don't have to listen to those mm. things. Yeah. That they're, right. they're always told that they're right. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, what else? That's, that's great. That, that, in fact... As someone who has gone through graduate school, that does happen. What else happens? What else are they saying? What's that? They pretend it's not happening. They sort of pretend it's not happening at the same time. Because it's an uncomfortable topic. Yeah. And people will do most anything to not feel uncomfortable. Hmm. You know, I might relate this to my own experience as a graduate student. When I was a graduate student, there were faculty that had points of view on how to study science, how to study society. 
And the graduate students really had to latch on to one of these faculty and become, in a sense, followers of that faculty member. Now, why would they have to do that? Just think about it. I know you're undergraduates now, but many of you will go on into graduate school. Why would that be important that graduate students would have to latch on and become followers of a senior faculty member? Why would that be almost absolutely necessary? Physically, think practical, not lofty ideas. Let's not go in the in in the realm of you know. Uh, uh, Grand theories, just physically what's going on. Go ahead. They need to do research. They need money for research. People who are going to get the money are going to be the faculty. And then you'll probably work under them or get money from them. So you need to agree with, or you need to at least pretend to agree with one of them so that someone will give you money so that you can do research. Money, that's important. Good. You need to do money to do your research. You know, when you do a dissertation, you have to come up with some new research, something brand new. And so usually... Some money is involved in getting the data or something. So there's money involved. And and who has access to the money? The senior faculty members. Money. Okay, that's one issue. It's also what a, else? Um, it's also um, approval. Like, so, um, like, if you're, let's say, the um, I'm underling a professor on XYZ, with that comes sort of reputation. Like, well, mm-hmm. so... Like you're I'm under a he slash she, they respect your work, mm-hmm. therefore you must be on the right path. That's a good point. Let me stretch you a little further. Mm-hmm. Why would that reputation uh, that you would sort of be attached to, the reputation of that senior faculty member, why would that ultimately be important to you and your what you want to do. Put it on a resume. You need someone to be a, basically a spokesperson for you. Even why, why would you need to have someone be a spokesperson for you? Because they're already known. You're not. You need somebody who will give you give you credence for any thoughts that you might have. or Even if they're, they're the same thoughts, you need someone basically to put a stamp on your work and say, you know, I approve of this. You know of me. You can take my word for that. It's good. Why would that be so necessary? Go ahead. So that like you can later become a senior professor, also, and so that you can be hired to get a job. Now you're starting to think like a graduate student. That's right. So you can get a job. <laughs> so you can get hired. I mean, with the economy the way it is, I walked into one of my modeling classes the other day, and I said, what are you guys going to do? And guys, I mean always, you know, women and men, generic. What are you guys going to do? And this is the first time since I've been teaching at the university level since uh, the early 1980s that I did not get a pat answer that was, you know, law school, medical school, going to become a rich stockbroker. I mean, I've never had a situation where the entire class looked at me one person said law school, and the rest of the class, the entire class said, beats me. I have no idea. We're dumbfounded. The economy's falling apart. We don't know what we're going to do. I mean, I said, well, hey, you know, you might want to become modelers. That's what I do. That's what I do for a living. 
I, I, I do modeling, mathematical modeling. I'm a mathematician working in a social science program, teaching mathematical modeling. I said, you know, there's not many of us, and the jobs are great for people who do mathematical modeling. You might want to think about becoming graduate students. Jobs. That's it. You see, the graduate students are worried just like the undergraduates were. What are they going to do to pay the bills? They know mom and dad are not going to support them. That's over. The boomerang principle of getting back to your parents' house doesn't work very long. You eventually have to get out and stay out. And they're getting sort of older, and they need a job. Well, exactly what you said. Somebody's got to vouch for them. You want this person on your faculty. What kind of jobs do they get? They get faculty jobs. They get assistant professor jobs. And if they publish enough, they can get tenure and hang around even longer. A lifetime of intellectual pursuits. So being accepted is a big deal. You get to literally get a job and keep a job. So the job issue is huge. Let's go over to page 270. Who's going to read now? It's a paragraph at the very bottom. Great. String theorists. String theorists are aware of their dominant position in the physics world, and most seem to feel that it's deserved. If the theory itself doesn't justify it, the fact that so many talented people work on it certainly should. If you raise detailed questions about one of string theory's claims with an expert, you risk being regarded with faint puzzlement as someone who has inexplicably chosen a path that precludes membership in the club. Of course, this isn't true of the more open-minded string theorists, but there is a a peculiar tightening of the face muscles that I've seen too often to ignore. And it usually happens when a young string theorist suddenly realizes that he or she is talking to someone who does not share all the assumptions of the clan. Why don't you jump down to another paragraph where it says, I have a broad range of interests. I have a broad range of interests, and I've always gone to conferences and fields outside my own. But only at string theory conferences have people come up to me and asked, what are you doing here? If I explained that I was working on string theory and wanted to see what other people were doing, they would say, browse quizzically furrowed, but aren't you that loop guy? No one at conferences on astrophysics, cosmology, biophysics, or postmodernism has ever asked me what I was doing there. At one string theory conference, a leading string theorist sat down, offered his hand, and said, Welcome home. Another said, It's so nice to see you here. We've been worried about you. What do you think? I mean, it's kind of that whole um, us versus them mentality that we were talking about before in a slightly different context. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that, like, that that humans, like, have to be part of a group. And if the other person is not part of that group, then there must be something wrong with them. Mm. Yeah. There must be something wrong with them if they're not part of that group. And when you go away and you think different thoughts... What do the members of the group say? That's the wayward child. The guys, the guy, you know, male or female, is sick. Something's wrong. Something's screwed up. 
Meaning, they defend their own. And when you leave the flock, you're just really screwed up. Now, science can't proceed. We can't discover new things unless we leave the flock. Unless we do things that are fundamentally different from what has been done before. Now, if our science, physics no less, has got this problem, imagine how many other areas we run into this same huge problem. Let me read a paragraph on page 274 that's really interesting. It focuses on the idea of the individual, the leader. 274 at the bottom, this. The narrowness of the research agenda seems to be a result of the string community's huge regard for the views of a few individuals. String theorists are the only scientists I've ever met who typically want to know what the senior people in the field, such as Edward Witten, think before expressing their own views. Of course, Witten thinks clearly and deeply, but the point is that it is not good for any field if anyone, any one person's views are taken too authoritatively. There is no scientist, not even Newton or Einstein, who was not wrong on a substantial number of issues they had strong views about. Many times in discussion, after a conference talk or in conversation, if a controversial issue comes up, someone invariably asks, well, what does Ed think? This used to drive me to distraction, and occasionally I would let it show. Look, when I want to know what Ed thinks, I'll ask him. I'm asking you what you think, because I'm interested in your opinion. This idea of reliance on other people's ideas. Let's relate this now to science fiction. Let's look at the syllabus. In the syllabus, I have ten major areas of science fiction identified. One is the struggle between collectivism and idealism and individualism. Collectivism and individualism. Another is the struggle between population growth versus environmentalism. And then utopianism. What exactly is this? It's a theme you get in science fiction. And then dystopianism, which is the opposite. The politics of gender. Artificial intelligence, slavery, and political reason. The idea of bioengineering and the value of artificially created genetic strains among both humans and non-humans. Apocalypse and war. Corporatism, cyberpunk, and technological dependency the struggle to control the evolutionary development of a civilization following the collapse of a previous social or political order involving religious, political, economic, and technological themes. That's a pretty wide range of areas, ten major areas that cover some, but not all, of the focuses that you get in science fiction. When we look at the readings itself, the novels themselves, such as Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, where we start off with the idea of information control and the circumvention of revolution. 
we get right into the thick of it. Why do you think science fiction is so alive? Why do you, what do you, how do you connect science fiction to what we see here in Lee Smolin's book? Now, I'm not looking for a pat answer. I'm looking with regard to particular areas of science that we've been talking about. What's, what's going on between science fiction? Why would science fiction be there? What's going on? Why do people pick up science fiction books? How many people read science fiction regularly? few of you? Okay, a few of you. How many people who don't read it regularly have read it at least occasionally? Occasionally. So most of you have read something. What's driving? What's driving it? Now just think about yourself. After what we've gone through with much of Smolin's book, what's driving the science fiction? Is it, what's actually going on there? I think in some cases it's a writer seeing a problem or an idea, a trend of society going somewhere and they want to examine a possibility for where that might lead us. Mm, that's a good thing. So they might actually want to use it as a vehicle to see what would happen. Yeah, a speculative. A speculative view into a what-if future. That's actually, some science fiction writers have said that. Yeah, go ahead. To be honest, um, money. Because Money. there's, a, I mean, a lot of young people and some older people, though I, I don't know too many um, adults that read science fiction on a regular basis because I think they sort of dismiss it as kid stuff. Um, but there's a huge audience for it. And money is a big issue. Okay, so some science fiction writers would do it because it's a way to make a living make the money in some fashion. Yeah, that does happen. Go ahead. A social commentary. Um, if you sort of like um, talk about the current world and talk about its flaws, sometimes, as we've talked about, there's a backlash in terms of what the group think. However, if you disguise it as a science fiction, oftentimes it, it goes over... Um, more um, effectively in the mainstream. All right, that's interesting. All right. Yeah, that can happen. What else? What would be another reason? Let's go through reasons that people might write science fiction. You well, got your hand raised. Yeah, I was going to say kind of what he had said, where they can express their ideas freely while being safe. You know, if it's science fiction, it can kind of just coast under the radar. Safe. Expressing one's views. I bet there are a good number of science fiction writers who like to do that. Have an area where they can do it safely. And if they brought those ideas into their mainstream jobs, if they're not science fiction, if they're not science fiction writers for a living, if, for example, if they work at the university, it might be a way for them to get these ideas out that they otherwise couldn't. What else? What else would cause a science fiction writer to want to write about these things. Interesting. Pardon me? Interesting. Just interesting. They're a subject that's interesting? Well, it could be a vehicle for just introspections of themselves, get 
insights from their own <coughs> imagination. It's a good way to pose questions that you know the characters and the stories might mm-hmm. resolve, and in doing that, they might resolve some question that they themselves had. Interesting. So that they would be able to pose questions and have the characters work out those questions. These answers are interesting, but they're a bit cerebral, in a way. And I'm wondering if you might see that there might be another reason for people to want to write science fiction. I'd like to bring something to your attention in the area of music, since we were talking earlier before class about some people's interest in music of your own interest in music. Wagner wrote lots of operas. Some of the great operas that he wrote go under one general title called The Ring, The Ring Operas. And that ring, I actually teach this when I teach the course called Politics in Music. The Ring Operas are like Lucas's Star Wars in the sense that You have to see all of the operas in a set, in a week. There's four of them. In order to get the whole story, the story goes on. And the operas are long, so you're there for the whole week slugging it out, sometimes four or more hours in the opera theater. And the idea behind the ring operas is he had a special theater built for it. Everything had to be just perfect. Now, Wagner was a nut, by all accounts. But... He was a brilliant nut, as many good scientists are. But he was a real nut. I mean, he was, had some really wild ideas. But when he wrote that, the Ring Operas, he did it for a real purpose. It wasn't just to write music and just to write an opera, to work through ideas. He actually was a revolutionary. He was an anarchist, but he was a revolutionary anarchist. He wanted to create a revolution. He wanted to grab society by the scruff of the neck and change it all. He wanted to do to society what Steve Jobs used to do to to Apple Computer. And when he wrote those ring operas, he did it with the full intent that they would spark the revolution. He actually did it with the idea that the operas, when they were performed, would then lead to a social revolution right away. Like, once they got going. And then people would revolt. And you'd have a huge upheaval in the society. He wrote in order to change society. The power of ideas. The power of ideas. What I think you will find when we get to many of these science fiction writers is that the ideas they portray, they don't do just this cerebral interpretation working through these ideas, they actually do these things with the intent of they themselves transforming society. Science fiction writers are often revolutionaries. Go ahead. Speak up, speak up. You're on the other side of the room. The fact that, like they said earlier, that it's safe, wouldn't that also contradict that whole point of trying to make a revolution or try to bring out new ideas because it's safe because people who read it tend to think of it as fiction that can't do rather than oh that, that that's actually possible. say it a little say a little more about it so like for example 
if you consider, I don't know, the Matrix or something. If you can do the Matrix? Yeah. So yeah. like that, it's enjoyment to watch as in it's enjoyment to read or whatever, that sort of example. And then, but the fact that it's not really posing any new ideas because so many people take it as entertainment, as a form of fiction. So wouldn't that actually not work too much in fact Fascinating question. The issue is, fascinating question. The issue is, if it's fiction, would people not take it seriously and thus not really cause a revolution? Is that what you're saying, yeah, basically? Yeah. Well, that's an interesting point. What would actually happen? You know, if you listen to kids who are your junior, believe it or not, you're the old timers. If you go into the high schools and the middle schools, you see a lot of those kids are fascinated with the idea of building matrices, like in the movie, The Matrix. Some of those kids have taken it whole hog. And they're growing, and they're behind you. And eventually they're going to be getting into studying artificial intelligence. Once you put an idea into society, it's not the old timers who adopt that idea and caused a revolution. It's the young ones. They get the idea early on, and then they take that idea with them. And so often you have to wait an entire generation before you see the revolution, before you see it actually happen in front of your very eyes. So it's true, it looks safe. But when people actually work with ideas, some creative writers actually want the revolution to happen right now, like Wagner. Others are planting seeds. But it's not just to be cerebral. Let's think about this, work this thing through with the characters. That's sort of curious. That's an interesting idea. It's, let's change the society. Let's make it march off in a different direction. Let's radicalize everything. Plant the seeds. And ideas do make a difference. We still, to this day, talk about Socrates. His ideas rattled around in this civilization for a very long time. We still, to this day, talk about Buddha, about Jesus, about Galileo. Ideas really do matter. These science fiction writers often see themselves as revolutionaries. Ways to change society is to slip ideas into the society. Anyway, the thing about Lee Smolin's book is he has found it in his own professional life so difficult to bring in new ideas to a society of physicists that are so rigidly opposed to these new ideas. So where does he have to go? He has some places that he can talk to friends about, but we haven't gotten to other parts of the book where he says it's very difficult for some of these people to get jobs. They can't get the postdoctoral fellowships that they need. They need a, They live on the margins sometimes, some of these radical physicists. Well, similarly, science fiction writers are people that often have marginal existences. They may have mainstream jobs, but their real ideas that they're trying to push into the society are things that they actually hope people will adopt and utilize years into the future. So when we get into these books, let's think not just about cerebral context of people working through ideas. Let's think also about 
people who raise these ideas in the realm of science fiction with the intent of literally fundamental rewriting society. Everything about it. Inserting ideas about what to do with genes, what to do with technology. Ideas that you read about in science fiction eventually gets into somebody's brain and that person later is in a laboratory and tries it out. And then you have to say, science fiction can be dangerous from one point of view. Because if you start doing the things that they're suggesting in science fiction, you may be changing society in ways 10 years, 20 years down the line that you may not want it to change. The problem with ideas is people take them differently than you need them sometimes. Mm. So, I mean, a lot of science fiction books are written as warnings against what could happen. Yes. And some people take them as, oh, this is what needs to happen. Yeah. So That's fascinating. What we'll have to do is sort out which of those two sometimes the author is trying to do. Is it a warning or is it a do it? <laughs> okay. First book, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, next time. Make sure it's read by Tuesday. We'll dive in, okay? Also, identify passages that you think are particularly relevant because I'll be asking you, every time we come in with a book, always have some things marked in your book, a paragraph here, a paragraph there that you find is relevant so that you can read it and make some comment about what is, what's, what's important about it. See you then.